In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear saints, last week we considered the words of Jesus from John chapter 16, the words he spoke to his disciples on the night when he was betrayed on what we now call Maundy Thursday. Well, today we're going to do the same thing again. The gospel lesson comes to us from the same exact chapter, John 16, spoken by the same person to the same people on the same night. In fact, for about six weeks in the historic one-year lectionary, all throughout the Easter season up to Pentecost, we get the same gospel lesson from the same discourse of Jesus from these same chapters, chapters 15 and 16 of John. Now, that should tell you something about the significance of Jesus' words here today that the church throughout all history has thought it was uh, worthwhile to meditate on these very words on this very night. It's profoundly significant. Now, last year I preached on the very words of Jesus in this text, what they mean, the very threefold work of the Holy Spirit. But instead of getting into exactly what Jesus said this night, this year I want to spend some time, actually all of this time, on when he said what he said and why he said it, when he said it, and how that's so significant. So what's going on here? Jesus says to his, to his disciples, he says, I am now going to him who sent me and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. So what is Jesus talking about? He's talking about his going away, which is not only about his ascension to the Father, but as we heard last week, it includes his bitter suffering and death. And even though Jesus has told them about this moment before, the disciples have forgotten that in order to accomplish their salvation, Jesus must suffer and die. In fact, they are stunned with sorrow. They're speechless. And that's why Jesus says, none of you asks me, where are you going? Jesus uh, uh, said last week, as I said last week, the disciples will be facing the greatest pain of their life. They're about to endure the pain of despair. And notice the words that Jesus uses here. He, He doesn't simply say that you're going to experience some sorrow or that you'll be touched by sorrow. He says, sorrow has filled your heart. There's no shred of joy or hope. All they feel and experience is sorrow because they grieve his departure. Now, in the midst of this sorrow and grief, what does Jesus do? Does he just give them time or tell them, go collect yourselves, take time uh, to, to be on your own, and then we'll gather back together? No, he gives them, he does this, he gives them some of the deepest and most profound theology that they've ever heard come out of his mouth. Now, I would argue that what Jesus says here this night, what is written here in John chapter 15 and 16, is the heaviest, most dense, and important theology and doctrine in the entire gospel. He teaches them about the glory of God, about persecution and martyrdom, about the person and work of the Holy Spirit, about suffering and crucifixion, about the atonement of sins, about sin, about unbelief, about the day of judgment, about prayer, about the Holy Trinity, about the theology of the cross, and so on. These are things that most Christians, sadly, don't really know much about. 
They have a very basic knowledge that Jesus died for the sins and then uh, that's about it. But Jesus here reveals something so much more here in one discourse. This entire discourse is brimming with theology, full of pure doctrine, overflowing with the deepest spiritual teaching you can find anywhere else in the world. It would take a lifetime to mine the theological depths of what Jesus' final words are saying here before his death. So here's the picture. You have this and you see this in mind now. While the disciples' hearts are filled with sorrow... Jesus gives them the fullest measure of theology and doctrine that has come out of his lips. Now, why would Jesus take this time to teach them such profound doctrine in a time of sorrow, a time like this? Now, my first reaction is that they wouldn't even be able to pay attention to it, let alone understand it. I've often wondered, look, why now? Why now, Jesus? Why didn't you say this before? Why didn't you just tell them this stuff when everything was going well? Like right after a miracle or calming the storm or something? Or why don't you just wait like three days or something and tell them all this stuff at once when you resurrect, when everything is accomplished, when you've risen from the dead and they're not weeping and crying anymore? Surely all of their fear and their regret and their sorrow will be gone by then when they see your face again. You even said it. So why don't you just tell them then? You'll be able to sit back, maybe drink some wine and just tell them all the details and intricacies of theology and present them with this heavy doctrine. Their minds will be clear and they can pay attention. Won't won't that be better than this? Well, Jesus knows better than we do. And he knows exactly what he's doing. I'll tell you what Jesus is doing here. And when I do it, I think it's going to make sense to you. But note this, I'm not making this up. I'm not imposing it or reading between the lines or imposing it into the text. In fact, I'm simply deducing here what Jesus is doing and what he does on this page and every single page of the scriptures. In fact, once you hear it, it's not going to be a shock to you. You'll know exactly why he teaches the heaviest theology while the disciples are grieving the most. And here it is. The reason is because the theology that sticks most firmly and deeply into your mind and heart is the theology that you learn when you are suffering. I'll say it again. The theology that sticks most firmly and takes root in your heart, in your heart and your soul, the most is the theology that you learn when you are suffering. Jesus obviously could have said what he said at any time in any place. He could have given the entire discourse after the feeding of the 5,000 or once his grave was empty. But that theology that he speaks this very night and that teaching would not have taken root in their hearts as it did this night. This theology, what he says this night, is grounded, cemented into their hearts precisely because they are suffering. In fact, you know it takes root because when Jesus ascends into heaven later, 40 days, they're not sad. 
Remember, they returned to Jerusalem with exceedingly great joy, as I've said before. Even more, you know it takes root in them and you know that this sinks in and it's imprinted on their hearts because the disciples don't go and cower away, but but after after Jesus after his ascension, his resurrection and ascension, Jesus, um, when he ascends, he sends the Holy Spirit, and the disciples go on to die horrible and tragic deaths, and yet they are comforted even in their affliction and in their sorrow because they know the Holy Spirit is with them. In fact, the point is this: theology is learned better when you are suffering than when you're not. Now, it's for this reason, this isn't any new, this anything new, it's for this reason that the psalmist in Psalm 119 says, it is good that I was afflicted. Now, why is that? He goes on and he says, it is good that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes, your teachings, your doctrine, your word. Do you see that? Suffering helps you learn theology, real theology. Now, it's not just a head knowledge, the memorization of facts and trivia that get you, uh, that you get from suffering and theology, as if you can just recite a bunch of things. No, there's something deeper, more profound going on here when this happens. St. Paul says it in Romans chapter 5. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been outpoured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So are are you seeing that? Suffering alone doesn't do that much. But when you suffer... And have the word, that is, when you hear and listen to the word of God, then something profound happens. The Holy Spirit is producing endurance in you. He's forming your character. He's reshaping your heart and your soul. He's taking away despair. He's filling you with hope and he is changing you. The Holy Spirit teaches best and most deeply, not in the school of ease and comfort and happiness and leisure. No, the Holy Spirit teaches us best in the school of suffering. When you are suffering, that's when you will study and pay attention to the word the most. Just as a footnote here, this is why pastors like preaching at funerals and not so much at weddings. Now, it's not because of some uh, morbidity that that they're uh, ingrained with or or because pastors don't like weddings. Weddings are wonderful. Marriage is a beautiful gift from God. But the point here is that there's so much pomp and music and circumstance and joy and clothing and cake and hype around the wedding that most people, even the bride and groom, don't really pay attention. They're, nobody's suffering. They're, everybody's happy. Everybody's overjoyed. So there's other things taking away their attention. So nobody's really listening. And that's why pastors don't really like preaching at weddings for the most part. is because they don't think anyone's listening. And most of the time that's true. But things are very different at a funeral. At a funeral, everyone is listening, whether they go to church regularly 
or not, everybody is paying attention. No one is taking pictures. Nobody's looking at what people are wearing or other people's faces. They're not looking at their watch every five seconds. Nobody's on their phone. They're all quiet. They're grieving. They're suffering. They're listening. They're not opening their mouth. They're hanging on every word. Now, this is also why a sermon like this won't necessarily hit everyone the same way. The words are true. The words are the same. But some will hear the sermon and just breeze past it and that's because they're not really listening. And if you don't necessarily like this sermon right now, I'm willing to bet that your life is going fairly well right now and that I'm willing to bet you're a little too comfortable. So you're not listening very well. You're not taking it to heart. It doesn't mean much to you. But I'd be interested to hear what you think if you re-listen to it in a dark time in your life. Well, and this is why also others will hear the word of this sermon here today. And they'll take this word to heart and cherish it and find immense comfort in the gospel here today. All right, so with all of that being said, I want to preach a word to those of you who are enduring a season of sadness whatever that may be. I know some of you are suffering in isolation, enduring troubles of health, discouragement, pain, sorrow, or grief, or panic, or shame, or despair. And and this is a word for you. Take care to not lay aside the study of God's word, the study of theology. Of all times, the devil will tempt you to take a break from theology now, from listening to the word, from studying scripture. You're you're tempted to think, why should I study now? What is there to learn now? I'm grieving. I'm crestfallen. Why would I go and try to learn something in the midst of all this trouble and sorrow now? Why should I think and work to read the Bible? And why don't I just wait until things are calm or things are better? Why don't I just wait until things are, are back to normal? This is none other than the temptation to self-pity and sloth. Don't do it. Don't fall for it. This is not a time for you to clam up or go hiding away. This is not a time for you to shut your Bible and close your ears. No, this time of sorrow is a time for you to study doctrine. This is when it will take root in you, change you, form your spirit and your character like never before. In the midst of sorrow, God has deep truths to teach you, character to form in you, hope to increase in you, and even, even many times, doctrine to correct in you. He uses these seasons of sorrow to correct you and speak his word, to teach you doctrine because sometimes these words won't stick down in your mind or take root in your heart unless you are in it. Many times, Our hearts are just simply unteachable and careless when we're surrounded by comfort and peace. We just won't take it seriously. We won't listen well. We don't care as much. And the point is this. 
Your suffering is not in vain. The Lord has designed this particular suffering, you name it, this particular suffering as a time for you to give yourself over, especially to the instruction of His Word. God is in control of all things, even the beginning and the ending of your sorrow. Yes, He is not the cause of your sorrow. No, He is not evil. He does not do evil things. But He does know when best to send you sorrow. And He also knows best when to end it. And this means that God has a purpose in all of your suffering and your sorrow. There is not one moment, not one moment in your life where you suffer needlessly. I, I know that what I'm about to say is a bit controversial since I'm about to criticize a hymn that is loved by so many people. But, but I have to. And this is why we don't sing what a friend we have in Jesus here at Zion. The first verse has a line in it that says, Oh, what needless pain we bear. Needless. Your pain is needless? This could not be further from the truth. The Lord has a purpose for all of your pain, even the pain that you bring upon yourself through your lack of prayer. Your pain is not needless. Your sorrow is not without purpose. God always has a purpose for your suffering, even if you don't know what it is. God uses all of your suffering for good. That is what Romans chapter 8 says. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Note, it does not say good things work together for good or some things work together for good or most things work together for good. No, he says God works all things together for good, for your good, according to his purpose. Your suffering, your pain, your sorrow is included in this. Now you may say, how can this be? How can this suffering and this pain be for my good? How can this hunger, how can this cancer be for my good? How can this isolation, this sickness, this pain, this agony, this losing of life and limb possibly be for my good. Well, to be honest with you, I don't know. I don't know exactly how God is using your pain for your good. And I know you don't know either. But God does. God knows. God knows how he is using your pain for your good. And that is what matters. I don't have the answer, but the Lord Jesus does. And in the midst of all of your pain and your sorrow, He teaches you to look to the one place that He has taught you to look your entire life, the one place He's teaching the disciples to look in this moment, to look to the cross. Look to the agony of Christ's death and see on that cross the worst, the absolute worst thing in history. 
in the history of the universe to have ever happened. There is nothing, nothing worse, more tragic, more painful, more sorrowful than the only Son of God, God of God, being traded and exchanged, dying horribly on the cross for sinners. And yet, and yet, you don't need to look any further than the cross to know that God brings good from evil. In the most evil act against the Lord, God used it for the most good. In the worst act, he brought about the best end. Your forgiveness, your salvation, your eternal bliss, your unending joy. If God has turned the most wicked and evil moment into the greatest blessing, do you think he can't bring good from your suffering and your sorrow? Do you think that your cancer, your isolation, your depression, your pain is too difficult, too much of a burden for him? Do you think it's needless pain? Do, do you think he can't bring a blessed end through these things? Do, do you think he is not using your suffering right now to improve you, to perfect you, to draw you closer to him? Do you think he's not using your suffering, your sorrow to confirm you in the faith, to make you make your poor heart rely upon him all the more, to find joy in his forgiveness and to bring you into his kingdom forever? Do you think that is the furthest thing from his mind? Of course not. That's the purpose that is what the first thing on his mind is your salvation your salvation which he desires more than you do since christ has died and resurrected since he defeated and conquered death and the grave since he has buried every one of your sins beneath a flood of his blood everything all things work together for good for you all suffering now serves him and it serves his purpose for he serves you. Suffering and death have no sting or victory. They are now servants of the Lord. They must do and accomplish what he commands them to do. There is not one moment of trouble you've had in your life that the Lord has not worked for your good to better you, to conform you to the image of his son. Jesus has not died has, has died not only to forgive your sins. This is the chief comfort, but he also died that he could send you the Holy Spirit, the comforter. And he sends you the Holy Spirit now in this moment, in the midst of your sorrow. He is active through the word. The Holy Spirit not only convinces you of your sin, but he also convinces you of the righteousness that is yours in Christ Jesus. And for this reason, he will not let you suffer in vain. He does not permit your suffering to separate you from him, as he says in, in Romans chapter 8. And he uses your suffering as discipline for your good, as Hebrews 12 says. Listen to what it says, Hebrews chapter 12. I'll close with this. He says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons for what son is there 
whom his father does not discipline. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who have disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I'm going to close with these words, the words of this hymn, What God Ordains is Always Good. What God ordains is always good, though I the cup am drinking. Which savors now of bitterness, I take it without shrinking. For after grief, God gives relief, my heart with comfort filling, and all my sorrow stilling. What God ordains is always good, this truth remains unshaken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, I shall not be forsaken. I fear no harm, for with his arm he shall embrace and shield me. So to my God I yield me. The peace which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.